in chapter 41 and go all the way to chapter 42, verse 4. Thomas Wolfe once wrote a famous book, a book, or a book with a famous title, I should say. The title of the book is, You Can't Go Home Again. And the book is a story about one George Weber who writes a best-selling novel. But the problem is, is he writes this best-selling novel about the people in his own hometown. And when they read the novel, they're angry and scandalized. The critics who read the novel loved it. The people across the nation loved it. But the people in his own hometown hated it. At one point, he received a letter, and it said this in the book. It's the dirtiest book I ever read. One citizen then cogently remarks, but I have to give you credit for one thing. You've got a wonderful memory. And Weber says this, and that's just exactly what I do not have. I have to see a thing a thousand times before I see it once. I have to see a thing a thousand times before I see it once. It's so true. We often need to rehearse something over and over and over in our mind to see it over and over and over and over again before we can even really see it once. That's human nature. And the Lord knows this, and so if you read the Old Testament, there is lots of repetition because you have to see something a thousand times before you really see it once. And the topic that we see repeated over and over, most often in the Old Testament, is warnings against the dangers of idolatry. More than anything else, you're going to find that the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets warned the people against idolatry. Now, the idolatry that they warned against was a specific brand of idolatry. The Jewish people of the time were not atheists. It's not as if they set aside their belief in the God of Israel to exclusively worship golden statues. The problem was is that they worshiped these statues along with God. So they added to their worship of God, worship of these man-made statues that they thought could do some good. So they were basically trying to cover their bases. And they proved with their actions that they did not exclusively believe in the power of the, tri of the triune God of the universe. This kind of idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It's not just a historic problem, but it's a human problem. We're all tempted, all of us in this room, no matter who we are, we're all tempted to be idolaters. Keller says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything you seek, God, you seek to give you only what God can give. Anything more important to you than God. Notice he doesn't say, and this is exactly right, he doesn't say that you set aside your belief in God. What he's asking is for us to consider what's the most important thing to us and wonder together, is that a God 
Isaiah would say yes. Isaiah would say yes. This ancient book has a very modern message for us this morning, and it's this. We all need to turn from our idols and entrust ourselves to Jesus. We all need to turn from our idols and entrust ourselves to Jesus. Now, last week, we heard, overheard, the Lord summon people from all over the world to be judged before Him. And instead of coming to Him in humility and asking for help, they turned to their idols who were of no help. Today, He speaks directly to the idols to see if they can respond for themselves. And so we're going to read beginning in Isaiah chapter 41. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and then a little later we'll consider Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 41, the word of the Lord says this. He's speaking to the idols here. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the God of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare, us, or, or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay. Who declares it from the beginning that, he, that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I gave to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among, those, among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us not just to understand this passage, but to be grasped by this passage. I pray that you would help us to be mastered by your word here this morning. I pray that you would give us the power and the sobriety and the courage to look in the mirror. And I pray that you would help us each to turn to you, Jesus, in whatever way we need to, Lord. I pray that you would give me, O oh God, as I preach the blessing of self-forgetfulness, and I pray that you would speak powerfully through your word. And it's in your name, Jesus. It's by your strength. And it's without you that we have no hope.
In you we pray. Amen. Called to turn from our idols to focus on Jesus. Now this text bids us to look and see, first, the futility of idols. The futility of idols. The Lord that calls out the starry host one by one challenges the idol gods of Israel by way of contrast. In verses 21 and 22, he dares them to show up to show what they can do. Look at verse 22. Let them bring them. That's speaking of idols. Let them bring their idols. He invites them to do something, to predict the future or explain the past. Verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed or terrified. When he says do good or do harm, he's saying do anything. You're just sitting there like a lump on a log and you're not doing anything. Do good, do harm, do something so that we can respond. But all you are is an immovable statue who can do nothing. And so the Lord God himself is taunting these idols, daring them to show that they are alive, show that they have some kind of strength or power by which to act or speak. But they are, these idol gods, are completely and totally inept, bereft of power, and totally unable to do anything. Verse 24 is the summation. Behold. Whenever you see the word behold in the Bible, it means look. It's a Bible way of saying look. Behold or look, calling all of us and the nation. Look, you are nothing, speaking of the idols, you are nothing. And your work, less than nothing. And an abomination is he who chooses you. In other words, you choose to worship an idol, you become an abomination. It's a forceful way of saying that those who serve these idol gods will themselves become as desolate as those statues they worship. Those who worship idol gods will themselves become as inept and as bankrupt as the statues that they worship. That's the proclamation. The Lord, on the other hand, contrasts himself and and he shows that he actually both directs the past and calls forth the future for his own good purposes. He is always and unfailingly in total control. He proves it again by bringing up Cyrus 100 years before he was born. Look at verse 25. I stirred up one from the north and he has come. Now, last week we heard that Cyrus comes from the east. And now he has him, now that Isaiah is speaking of, of Cyrus coming from the north. Now, why is that? Well, that's because Cyrus was born east of Babylon. But when he marched on Babylon to conquer it, he came from the north. The Lord controls all the small little details of this situation. He is in control of past, he is in control of present, and he is in control of future, and he is announcing the conqueror of Babylon before Babylon has conquered Jerusalem and before even the the conqueror of Babylon 100 years before he was even born. That's the nature of our God. He calls his shot. And so the summary point 
Comparing idols, the idol gods, to the true and living God is clear. Verse 29. Behold, they, they being the idol gods, are all a delusion. They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Look, he says, look at your idols, he tells them, that you hold so dear. They can do nothing. They are themselves nothing. They are of no help to you. And in fact, they are nothing but empty wind. Now, from our 21st century vantage point, it's easy to scoff at those in the past who worshipped metal statues devoid of power. We know that a statue has no power and that it is nothing. But what's harder for us to see is that we worship and are tempted to worship idols just like they did. Because idolatry is a human problem, not a historic problem. Idols are not just gold-plated statues that people worshipped in the past or some parts of the world worship today. We can make nearly anything a false god. For example, the prophet Ezekiel describes a group of men, or the Lord describes to Ezekiel a group of men like this. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord said, came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and have set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? See, idols don't just exist out there. They exist for us today, for sure, primarily in our hearts, inside where no one can see them. We are, we are apt and able to set up idol gods just like the people of Israel, but they're invisible. John knows this very well in the very last sentence that he writes in 1 John. He says this to the people he loved like a father. His very last word is this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is a human problem. Not a historic problem, and idolatry also is a Christian problem. It is a problem for all of us in this room, even if we follow Jesus. The fight against idolatry is serious, and it's one that we all must fight. And the positively most insidious part of idolatry is that anything can become an idol, even good things. An idol can be anything, a false god can be anything that captures our attention and so occupies our mind that we are convinced we can't live without it. Is there anything other than Jesus for you today that you think you can't live without? If so, that, more than likely, is your idol that you brought in with you today. Is there anything that if it were taken away, you would want to stop living? If so, that 
probably, that you brought in with you today is your idol god. Is there anything that you consider so fundamental to your identity that if you lose it, you would not be you? If so, that is what you brought in with you today, your idol god. Behold, all of us have them. The idols we are tempted to serve are good things. They're gifts from God that we turn into gods. See, it's easy, easy, easy to see how porn and alcohol and greed and pride are idols and we should give them up because they always are bad. But the hard part is when we turn good gifts from God into false gods that we worship. It's hard to kill and even identify these idol gods that are not bad, but good. For example, it is good to enjoy your family, but your family can become an idol. It is good to desire an education for your children, but your children's education can become an idol. It is good to work hard at your job, but your job can become an idol. It's good to look forward to the gift of retirement, but your retirement can become an idol. It's wonderful to enjoy good food, but food can become an idol. It's outstanding to enjoy rigorous exercise, but exercise can become an idol. It's good to support your children in sports, but kids' sports can become an idol. It's great to enjoy music, but music can become an idol. It's wonderful to enjoy friends, but friends can become an idol. It's good to want to get married, but wanting to get married can become an idol. It's good to enjoy leisure, but enjoying leisure can become an idol. It's good to want to preach well, but preaching can become an idol. See, it's easy to construct these idol gods because we can make them out of anything. And we are all really good at it. I mean, we are experts at the homemade idol. Boom, I can make this, I can shrink it down, and I can put it right in my heart, and I can carry it around with me wherever I go. And you can't tell. Now, if I was walking around with a little midget Buddha god and put that down, you'd probably think, he probably shouldn't be up there. <laughs> the discerning, sharp crowd that you are. But the reality is, all of us construct these little idol gods and put them in our hearts. I do. I do all the time. It's so easy. Idols are those kinds of things that we need to see a thousand times before we really see them once to see how dangerous they are. It's so easy. Maybe the easiest thing in the world to be seduced into worshiping an idol god of our own making. They make such alluring promises. They pledge such happiness. They guarantee such fulfillment, but they never, ever, ever deliver. Here's how it works. I'll pick on me, not you. The idol of preaching or ministry in general, is a false god that very many pastors 
have thrown themselves up against those rocks so many times. See, even the faithful preaching of God's Word can devolve into idolatry. How? Well, if you have the responsibility to preach, it's very tempting to think, I'm a preacher before I'm anything else. That's not true. That's always dangerous. And then you're only as happy as how well you think you did on your last sermon. Or you can't conceive of how your identity even functions if you're not preaching. Or if you preach negatively or preach poorly and someone says something negative, you're an abject failure. You, you become preoccupied with how you do instead of being preoccupied with preaching faithfully Jesus Christ. See, that's a temptation for anybody who has the responsibility to preach. We're all the same. That's my temptation from time to time. I have those kind of idol gods and so do you though it may not be related to preaching. We all need serious help, and we all need to recognize that we are apt to construct our own gods and put them in our hearts and define our lives by them. The late David Pallison asks a penetrating question when he says this, Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust? preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, or delight? If so, that, friends, is an idol. How does the Lord consider the idols we carry around in our hearts? What does the Lord think of those idols that we cherish? Well, look at verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, behold, all of our idols, all of our false gods, a delusion. Now, is there any help for us? Yes, there is. And we're going to hear the word behold again, this time with, not with reference to our idol gods that we carry around in our hearts, but now our eyes are going to be directed toward a servant. And we're going to see, after now the futility of idols, the steadfastness of Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now this is the very first time in the book of Isaiah we're introduced to this servant of the Lord who is to come. Isaiah is going to speak of his ministry on and off from this point out. Notice what we hear about the servant. He has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. This means that he is the Lord's preeminent servant. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He speaks for God and also as God. We see also that he brings justice to the nations. He will set things right that are wrong. He will make things straight that are bent. He will stand up for the weak and the oppressed, not just in Israel, but throughout the whole world. He's not one who cries aloud. His life on earth, his ministry, his way of service was not showy and loud, but quiet and faithful. A bruised reed he will not break. A flickering candle, that's, what, that's what, what he means here when he says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That means he's gentle and he's kind to the weak. He does not discard people when they break down. He does not grow faint. Suffering, in other words, does not immobilize him. He will not rest until he has accomplished his mission and established justice the world over. Who is this servant? Who is this one? Well, we know he is Jesus the Christ. In fact, Matthew's gospel directly quotes what we read in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. In chapter 12, we read this, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Remember, he's not crying out. He's not saying, hey, look at me. Let's get a selfie. Let's make this trend. No, he's quietly doing his work and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. This description of his ministry is what's most striking. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. We've just gotten finished hearing that the Lord regards idols as nothing and fruitless and futile. And some of us have made ourselves weak and burdened with these false gods. How is the Lord going to regard you? Well, like this, a bruised reed, 
he will not break. A flickering candle, he will not blow out. See, in in antiquity, reeds were most commonly used as writing instruments. What good is is a writing instrument that's about to break? Nothing. What good is a sputtering candle that's about to go out? If it can't provide any light, what good is that? It's of no good. But Isaiah describes how the servant of God is going to regard the bruised and flickering people. A bruised and nearly broken reed, a bruised and nearly broken person, he will not come and break. A sputtering candle, just about to go out, he will not come and blow out. What does he do? He moves toward the bruised. He moves toward the flickering. He moves toward them to help them. He does not ignore the needy, nor does he ignore the downcast. He does not overlook the broken and the weak. He does not cast off the brokenhearted. Are you bruised by the idols you've carried around just about to break? Do you feel like you're just flickering about to go out? Jesus, Jesus will not break you and he will not put you out. He will not cast you off. Some of us in this room are weak because we've been sinned against. Some of us are bruised because we've wandered from the Lord. Others of us are just flickering because we've given ourselves over to the idols of our hearts. Still others are bruised because they're grieving in some way. What does Jesus do? He moves to us to help us. What do idols do? They exact a toll because it's never enough. You serve money, you never have enough. You serve reputation, it's never good enough. You serve your job, you never arrive. You serve Jesus, and he promises to come and help you as you are bruised by life's indignities, as you suffer through hardship, even hardship of your own making. He does not cast you off and say, it's what you deserve. He moves to help and bind up the brokenhearted and strengthen the weak. In light of what we just considered about chapter 41, where we've seen just the idols that that we are apt to carry, we see that. But yet we also see here This servant, which would you rather serve? A servant who moves to help? Or idols that offer no answers but only make demands? Jesus, the servant, gives us mercy. Mercy. It is remarkable that the God who sits above the circle of the earth 
and regards its inhabitants as grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness, it's remarkable that he sends a servant who grants mercy to idolatrous grasshoppers. But he does. He is great. He is mighty. But is also, he is also merciful. Greatness and mercy do not go together in our world. The great are not merciful. The great and the powerful crush those people who are in their way. The great and the powerful will stop at nothing to get what they want. The great and the powerful will cast off those people who are not of any help or use to them. The great and the powerful will use people up and throw them off to the side. But that is not who our Lord is. Though we are tempted to worship at the, at the altar of false gods, our Lord comes to us and says, even if you are bruised at, because of your idol worship or flickering because you've given yourself to different false gods, I will bind you up. See, the Lord exhibits His greatness by giving us mercy. What idol gods have you been serving? And maybe just now the light's starting to come on. You've seen it a thousand times, but you've just today begun to see. You can come to Jesus clothed in your weakness and your need, knowing that you will receive mercy. Because a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is kinder and gentler than all of our idol gods. We offer no sacrifice to him because he has sacrificed to us, for us. See, this is the nature of how our servant serves. Our servant serves by coming and living a perfect life. He has pledged himself to us. In pledging himself to, to us, he came to earth to live the life we could never live so that we might be able to put our trust in him. So that in his death and resurrection, we might know that we do not have to worship anymore at the feet of some kind of idol God. We have the promise of the true and living God who has now pledged himself to us. The servant of the Lord has served us beyond what we could ever do for ourselves. He knows we are weak. And he does not hold that against us. He is acquainted with our weakness and our infirmities. And it does not put him off. He does not break bruised reeds or flickering candles. Richard Sibb says this, What mercy may we not expect from so gracious a mediator who took our nature upon him that he might be gracious. He is a physician good at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. So what are we to do? 
Well, we've beheld the futility of the idols that we carry around. And now we've beheld the mercy of our Lord, the servant of the Lord. Pick. Who would you like to serve? An idol that always asks for more and demands sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? Or Jesus, who has died and yet lives forevermore, for where there is no more, yet, more, no more sacrifice left for sin. He does not chide us, nor does he punish us. He cherishes us and empowers us. You might say, I'm not worthy. That is correct. You are not. None of us are. The gospel message is not God accepts us just as we are. Rather, God accepts us just as we are in Christ. Jesus is the reason we can come to him just as we are. He paid the unimaginable price for our idolatry. So, we are free today just to confess our idolatry to him, knowing he will not come and crush us. He will not come and quench us. He will come and bind us and build us up and strengthen us and keep us. Behold, your servant Savior. Turn from your idol, whatever that may be, or your idols, and entrust yourself to Jesus. Turn from those things that you are tempted to think, this is who I am, and look to Jesus. Turn from those good things that you've made ultimate things, and look to Jesus. Turn from those markers that you think, this defines who I am, in my job, or as a mother, or as a father, or as a husband. Turn from those sorts of things, those definitions of who you are, and turn instead to Jesus. And he will receive you and be merciful to you because there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. As Richard Sibb says, turn from your idol and entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, I know all of us in this room with me at the front of the line, we all struggle with some form of idolatry. We are all apt to construct our own homemade gods. To say of something, I will not, I cannot be happy unless this or that or the other thing is a part of my life. Lord, we're grateful that you Give us so many wonderful gifts to enjoy. But Lord, help us not to be those people who make those gifts ultimate things. To set those gifts that you've given us on the altar of our hearts so that we worship and serve things that are meant to be gifts. 
Lord Jesus, may we be a people who consecrate ourselves and focus on You. You are the one to whom we owe all of our lives. You are the one to whom we owe everything we have. You are the one who we entrust ourselves to. You are the one and the only one that we can give safely all of our allegiance to. You're never going to take advantage of us. You're never going to cast us off. You're never going to say, that's enough, I'm done. You're always, always going to us in kindness and mercy because that's who you are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to confess those idols that we carry around to you. Help us kill them, Lord. And help us pledge ourselves only to you. Jesus, thank you for being the servant of the Lord to help weary, bruised reeds like us flickering candles just about to go out. Help us to turn from our false gods and turn instead to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.